Uh, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue in this new series called From the Mountain Peak, where we are spending time just in this first chapter of Ephesians. Last week, we looked at the first two verses. That was Paul's greeting, his introduction, where we learned that the transforming grace of God uh, makes once those who were once sinners uh, into saints now in Jesus. The gospel of God's grace transforms our identity. Now, today and next week, we are going to do an overview of verses 3 to 14, and we are going to get a big picture sense of what this passage is about before then we come down and start combing through uh, the verses uh, in smaller sections. And so today is one of those days where when we read all, ver- all ver- uh, verses 3 to 14, we get this uh, really wonderful glimpse of our salvation from the mountain peak. I mean, it's, uh, I hope that you have come ready to receive God's word. And so I invite you now, if you are able to stand with me, standing is an act of worship so that we read God's word, we receive God's word. Ephesians chapter one, beginning with verse three here. Now the reading of God's word. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you join me in asking the Lord's blessing? Father, because this is a word that comes from you, its meaning, its understanding, its application also needs to come from you. And so speak not only to our minds, but to our hearts. And as you do so, help us to be a listening people, people of the word, people who... um, Draw our comfort from your word and draw counsel from your word and draw our convictions from your word. Form us to be these kinds of people. And now, Lord, as we look at our salvation, the salvation you have given to us so freely in Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be primed and ready to respond in worship and in great thanksgiving and gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I found that there are few things in life that require as much patience as driving through the city of Philadelphia. Uh, once in the city, looking for a parking, especially looking for a parking, requires uh, an abounding of that fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? 
Uh, in light of the pandemic, if you've gone to the city in the past 16 months with restaurants now offering outdoor seating, I mean, whole streets have been blocked off. The parking is uh, even more harder to find than it already was. In the city, it can get so congested. The traffic can be so utterly frustrating that maybe like myself, you have grumbled and muttered, I should never have come to the city in the first place. I often find myself saying, I should have just stayed in good old Lansdale, there's no city quite like it. Now, if you've ever navigated the chaos of city driving uh, from the ground, it's a totally different experience than flying into Philadelphia on an airplane where you're looking down at the city, especially at night when you see the lights of the city buildings. From high up, the city looks stunningly beautiful. It shines brilliantly, the city of brotherly love, which is very different from the boots on the ground when you're trapped in your cars on busy one-way streets and it feels like, man, this is the city I really hate. Sometimes that perspective is necessary in order for us to appreciate something that we've grown used to, something that's become stale. I think sometimes when it comes to our salvation, uh, we need to take a step back and remember once again, uh, looking at it from a bird's eye perspective, from the peak of a mountain, how glorious this salvation is. And that's what Ephesians 1 is doing. It's getting us out of the weeds of all the verses, just helping us step back and just look at the glory of our salvation. Because we realize that the gospel is not just full of propositions for us to think about and analyze but it's a wonderful, glorious truth and news for us to experience. So here's our gospel truth this morning. Salvation spans from eternity to eternity and is given to enjoy and embrace. Salvation spans from eternity to eternity and it's given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's given for you to enjoy and embrace. Now, what does that mean? We're going to look at this passage under three headings. Uh, the first is the security of our salvation then we're going to look at the freedom of our salvation. And then lastly, the hope of our salvation. Some of you thought I forgot how to do three points, uh, but I still remember the security, the freedom, and the hope. Or put another way, salvation from eternity past, from the earthly present, and eternity future. So we're going to get into these three things as we consider this gospel truth. So let's get started. Heading number one, the security of our salvation or salvation viewed from eternity past. I want you to consider the way that Paul talks about our salvation in this passage. He begins this section by focusing on what was already planned for believers in eternity past. We have to read Paul's words, not our words. And so look with me at verses four and five, where he writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul here is not embarrassed to make an astonishing statement, which is this. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Before any of us was created, before we had any say in the matter, salvation, Paul says, was predestined by God. Those aren't my words, those are his and the point here is that God's decision to save was made before we did anything good enough to qualify for salvation or even before we did anything bad enough to disqualify ourselves from salvation. And so verse 11 goes on, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul is not ashamed of that word we've come to consider dirty, the P word, predestination. He uses it. Why? Because Paul's point is that salvation is an act of God's sovereign grace that before we ever did anything for him, before we did anything good for him, before we did anything bad against him, God had already secured our salvation. For those who are Christians, God secured you, secured you and your salvation before the foundation of the world, meaning then this, the security of your salvation does not rest on your spiritual performance, but it rests on God's purposes. We need to really begin to understand that. The security of my salvation is not dependent on my spiritual performance before God, but on God's purposes. And so twice we read in this passage alone, in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you really believe, do you understand that your performance could never alter or change what God has purposed for you? Before time began, he knew your name and he wrote it in his book so that before you could ever impress him, your name was already written for those in Christ. But get this, he wrote your name in his book, not in pencil, but in pen, meaning also that there's no sin so awful that you could get yourself erased from his book. Now, why did he predestine us? Why did he choose us before the foundation of the world? Why before we could do anything good for him or bad against him? And we would be tempted to say, well, it's because of our loveliness, because of our lovableness. But what the scriptures say it has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God. Paul writes to the end of verse 4 into verse 5, these words, in love, he predestined us for adoption. Out of God's abounding love, not the incredible loveliness in you, the amazing loveliness about you, but out of God's abounding love, he moved towards you, not repelled or disgusted or distracted by your sin, but overwhelming it, swallowing it up, overcoming it. The salvation we have in Jesus is a salvation secured for us before the foundation of the world. And that means at least two things for us if you are a Christian. First, you can rest from trying to impress God all the time. Much of the Christian life is lived in exhaustion because we are always trying to impress God. You don't need to get him to notice every good thing that you've done for him because he's loved you already. Listen, that also means this. It also means you can stop running away from God every time you mess up and every time you sin because he loves you unconditionally. And when I was in college, I was required to take four semesters of an ancient language for my major. I majored in Near Eastern Studies. Here were my options. I could have taken four semesters of Middle Egyptian, Akkadian, Sumerian, or Biblical Hebrew. And so I did what was wise. It took biblical Hebrew because I was a Christian. I wanted to know God's word. I wanted to be able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so the first two semesters, there were seven students in the class. One Jewish girl, <laughs> five uh, PhD students who needed to learn all of this, uh, and then me. 
Meaning that by the time it got to Hebrew three and four, my last two semesters, I was the only student in the class, the professor and me. It made it really hard to skip 8 a.m. classes. <laughs> now, the language was a lot of work. It was fairly difficult, but it was worth it. I wanted to learn this language. But it also meant because it was so foreign that it was incredibly difficult and stressful. I was always anxious about how I would perform on quizzes and, and tests, especially because it was just me and her. But I will say this. I remember this before the winter final exam. Uh, in the last class we had together before reading week, she said, Andrew, you know, it's obvious you're the only student in this class. I don't want you to, you know, kill yourself over studying. I just want to let you know that no matter how you do it, I'll give you an A. Now, we can joke, and most of us are probably thinking it, well, then why would you study for the final exam? But you know what? The, that's not the real question. The question is, if you really wanted to learn it, why wouldn't you study for the final exam? I wanted to study. I wanted to do well. I wanted to learn this material. And as a result, because my security was already determined, my grade was already secured, um, it didn't motivate me to slack off, but it motivated me to study without stress and anxiety. I still burned the midnight oil that reading week. I still drank more Red Bull than you should in your life. But having that A supplied for me, given to me, granted to me, secured for me, gave me joy in the suffering of study so that now I could study without the need to perform in the same way, the security of your salvation in Christ from eternity past is good news because it means this, you cannot fail. You've already passed in Jesus Christ. And those who see the beauty and the glory of the gospel of their salvation, they will still want to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Anybody who understands that my security uh, my salvation is secured in Christ before the foundation of the world and therefore says, well, I can live however I want now, does not understand. They are ignorant to the glory of their salvation. If you know it, if you believe in it, if it's secured for you, anchored for you, it increases not fear and anxiety of how I perform, but a faith, a trust, a rest in the purpose of God. You know what Ephesians 1 is? Ephesians 1 is a sneak peek into God's grade book. And in Jesus Christ, God will give you that A+. It already was before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Nothing is going to change that determination, not even you. So we learn to embrace salvation. We learn to enjoy salvation. Because, listen, even on your best spiritual days, you're not going to impress God. And even on your worst spiritual days, you're not going to discuss God. Even on your best spiritual performance, you're not going to earn your salvation or add to it. Even on your worst days of spiritual performance, you're not going to take away from it. So what do we do? We stop running from God when we did something bad. I'm too ashamed to come to him. We stop running to God. God, look at all the things I do. What do we start doing? You start resting in God. You rest in what he has secured for you in Christ and because of Christ. A secured salvation. And the second thing we see is the freedom of our salvation, the things we enjoy now, here, presently, on earth. Paul says in verses 7 and 8 this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight 
Paul is saying every believer in Jesus Christ gets to enjoy a type of freedom presently, now. Because we've received, he says, redemption and forgiveness. Now, forgiveness we understand. The wiping clean of our record. But redemption is a word that we far less understand. Redemption simply means this. It's deliverance by the payment of a price. In the Old Testament, who was redeemed? A slave was redeemed when a price was paid, right? A widow could be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. But the, the, the most common uh, and most uh, powerful way that redemption is used is to describe the experience of the Israelites as they were redeemed, they were delivered, they were set free from slavery out of Egypt. And so the offer of redemption for Christians means that in this life, because a payment has been made, that there is deliverance, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from slavery to selfishness that demands the world is all about me and you must center around me. Everything must center around me. God must center around me. It's a freedom from that kind of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness. Paul says salvation means you are redeemed and brought out of that. And so you no longer have to demand that the things in your life, your wife, your children, your husband, your work, convenience and comfort, all of that, you stop demanding that those things orbit around you and you begin to understand my life begins to orbit around the son, the son of God. Redemption is yours, Paul says, because Christ shed his blood for you. You are freed now. When I was in seminary, a couple of us uh, early in the semester headed up to New York City and a friend of mine, she was from Florida, drove, and uh, you know, none of us were too familiar with the city. And so without knowing, we accidentally parked in a uh, car tow, you know, towing zone. And uh, man, they are fast. I mean, like we stepped in this place, I think it was to get pizza, and we came out and boom, you know, we saw the, car, the tow truck taking the car already. And so panicked, you know, kind of uh, scared, what do we do? We asked uh, the local police officer, and he said, well, you have to go to so-and-so redemption center. It was very interesting that it was called a redemption center. And so this was uh, a few years ago and before there was Lyft and Uber, and so we called a cab, and we took a cab across the city, got to this redemption center, and she had to pay an exorbitant fee. I mean, there's the fee of getting your car towed, and then there's the fee of storage, right? And you get charged a day when it's been in there for 10 minutes. Um, and so she paid this fee, and in return, she didn't get her keys or anything. She got a piece of paper, a slip of paper that was stamped in red, uppercase letters, redeemed. And she was given this slip and she was supposed to go to uh, the security area, the lot where there's, you know, the fences with the, um, you know, the chain link fence and present this redeemed slip in order to get her car. Now notice that the slip said redeemed and not paid because the car was already paid for. She had already bought the car. What she was doing is redeeming the car. She was bringing the car out of captivity, <laughs> out of holding. She was setting her car free. That's what redemption is. Jesus redeeming you, setting you free, releasing you out of spiritual slavery and bondage to sin, to the things of the world, to the influence of the evil one. He is setting you free. That's what redemption is, so that you can live a life of freedom. A life no longer bound to the enslaving, gripping power of sin. 
that's yours to enjoy. And the Christians often forget about that. They talk about forgiveness already done. They, forgot to, they forget to live their redeemed life. But now in Christ with redemption, you can live freed from every lustful thought and fleshly impulse. You can be set free from the constant anger you have at yourself or at others or at the circumstances of life. You can be set free from holding grudges and not wanting to forgive somebody and drowning in your own bitterness as a result. You can be set free from living only for yourself and only being concerned with you and putting your self-interest above everyone else. You can be set free from sin. And if you are in Christ and you are redeemed, you are set free from sin. And that the redemption cost price paid for you was not paid in gold or silver or dollars or Bitcoin. It's paid for, Paul says, through his blood. And Jesus gave his life for you, for your redemption. It's a gift you have. A gift that's purchased, but not is on its way. The gift of redemption has not left its shipping facility. The gift of redemption is not on the UPS truck. The gift of redemption is not going to be delivered by 9 p.m. on your front door. The gift of salvation and redemption is yours. Now you hold it, you possess it. Meaning this very day, this very moment, we can live in light of our freed and redeemed realities. Christ has redeemed you. The shackles are broken. The chains are gone. The jail door is open. The guards have gone home. Stop living as a slave. Yeah, sure, the evil one will come and he has a bag full of lies and accusations and condemnation that he'll throw at you. He'll whisper in your ear, you are condemned. But the gospel should scream louder, no, you are forgiven. And he'll whisper at you, no, you're guilty. To which the gospel screams louder, no, you are justified. Satan will whisper in your ear, no, you are enslaved, to which the gospel declares you are redeemed. In big, red, uppercase letters, you have been stamped, redeemed by Christ, redeemed by his blood, redeemed and ransomed, paid for and purchased, blood bought. You're not a slave anymore. You're not too weak to resist the devil. You're not trapped in sin nor held captive to the influence of the world, but you are free now to choose the spirit over sin, to choose Christ over complaint, to choose gratitude over grumbling, to choose adoration over anger. And so many of us are living our lives faced, facing the wall, facing in the prison cell, looking out the window where there are still bars without realizing that if we were just to turn around, the door cell has been opened. And the guards have gone home. And we're just like Paul and Silas in the city jail in Philippi when the gates were flung open and they just needed to walk out. Dear friends, what would it be like for you to live as one who is redeemed, to live in the freedom of your salvation? This is a glorious promise. But here's the third and final one we see. It's the hope of our salvation. You know, Paul talks about things in eternity past. And then he talks about things now. You have redemption. But then he talks about something yet to come in the future. And that is our hope. Verses 13 and 14. Let's read here. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee 
of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we're going to get more specifically into what these verses are saying, but for now, I simply want you to notice where is this promise located? It's located in what is to come in the future. It is waiting for us at the door when we will enter into eternity to spend it with God forever. Our promised inheritance is reserved for us, prepared for us, and waiting for us to acquire it one day. You know, the thing is, like, the gospel has so many present benefits, so many present gifts that you can enjoy now here on earth. But the gospel is also saying, listen, the best is yet to come. Because once life here ends and we close our, last, or close our eyes for the last time, that is not a door being shut once and for all. When we close our eyes in this side of eternity, we're going to open our eyes and realize that the door was never shut. The door is a swinging door, and we walk through into a new life that God has promised for us, where there is waiting for us this promised, guaranteed inheritance. And it's this idea that in the Christian life, when we are in the darkness of a tunnel, there's always light. Light is always breaking in. That's the hope that Paul is laying forth for us. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, so you don't have to give up. Because you know there is light, you keep going. You know, what I, I love listening to people's stories, especially those who have run uh, marathons. Now, there are two kinds of people who run marathons. There are those who are good at running marathons and those who are bad at running marathons. I'm not talking about Olympic runners who set new records. I'm not talking about people who've run their third or fourth or fifth marathon. I had a friend who a couple years ago after Kobe Bryant passed away, he ran a marathon in LA, dribbling a basketball the whole way. I mean, that's impressive, but that's not inspiring. What's inspiring is people who run marathons who look like me. <laughs> people who you would least expect to run and complete a marathon. People who, when you say, how fast did you run it? They'll say, seven hours, eight hours. Those people who barely made it to the end. There isn't anything impressive about those kinds of stories, but there's something inspiring about those stories. Here's why. Because if you finish in eight hours, that means you struggled the entire run, 26.2 miles. If you ran it in eight miles, that means the whole race from the beginning, people were passing you. If you ran in eight hours, that means at one point when you're running, people are next to you walking faster than you. If you ran in in eight hours, that means by the time you got to the finish line, there's nobody cheering you and applauding you because they've all gone home. But it's inspiring because despite all of this, they kept going. They ran. Why? Because they knew there was a finish line. They endured. They persevered. The Bible likens the Christian life to running a race where there is a finish line. And in this race, God is not so concerned about your performance in running the race. He's more concerned about your perseverance in finishing the race. We want to run the race all beautiful, but the reality is it doesn't matter how beautifully you run the race. It matters how you finish the race. And yes, some of us, we're going to get to that finish line broken and battered and beaten and bruised. But we will get to that line. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you have this guaranteed inheritance 
and the Spirit is sealing it on your hearts, and you will one day acquire possession of it. And the beauty of this reward that is waiting for us at the end of this finish line is not that it's a reward given to the top 10 runners, or the top 100 runners, or the top 1,000 runners, or the top million Christians of all time. That the reward of our inheritance is offered to any and all who cross the finish line. I mean, this is the greatest participants trophy and award of all time. And when we cross that finish line, the victor, the first victor, the one who ran ahead of us and crossed Jesus himself will meet us with open arms saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And in crossing that finish line, we will receive acquired possession of this inheritance. Now, what is the inheritance? For those who are thinking of gold or diamonds and jewelry, Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The inheritance is the kingdom. You will receive the kingdom. You will be received into the kingdom. And in that glorious kingdom, all will be made right. The chaos of your life brought into order. The confusion you're going through brought into clarity. Death will be dealt with and destroyed. Evil will be exterminated and extinguished. Bodies will be resurrected. Brokenness will be restored. And all your present sufferings will give way to the eternal weight of glory. That's the promise of the inheritance of the kingdom. Which means there is great hope awaiting for us that when this world gives way, we are entering into a new one. And the hope that the darkness of the tunnel isn't forever. The valley doesn't descend forever. The clouds don't block out the sun forever. One day the fog will lift. And upon lifting, that which was so distant and far in the horizon, which we could only perceive by faith, we will now hold and possess by sight. This is a hope to be enjoyed, embraced, lived in, experienced now. See, this is what Ephesians 1 is doing for us. It's taking us up the mountain and showing us the glory of God's salvation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. A salvation which cannot be earned, but only received by faith in Christ. As I close, just I want you to think about simply this. Which aspect of this magnificent 3D view of salvation do you need this morning? Do you need to hold to the security of what you know is yours before the foundation of the world? Do you need to live in the freedom of the salvation that Christ has purchased and bought for you? Do you need to cling to the hope of that which is yet to come, but held forth for you on the final day? Which of the glorious promises of the gospel do you need? And whichever one you need, here's the good news. It is yours freely in Christ. Let's pray.